Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. Hello, thank you for coming back to this podcast. It has had quite the break, sort of unintentionally. I had several interviews booked and one by one they had to reschedule or cancel or postpone in some way. And so usually I would try and figure out how to get the content out to you. And I actually just had to honor the fact that I was exhausted and tired and my non-podcasting virtual life was continuing to get busier and busier and I'm adding parent of primary school student to the mix and all the commitments that are going on there as well and I just had to stop um, rather than continue to push through. So if you are in a moment in your life where you feel like you're constantly pushing, if it is possible, this may be your reminder to just slow down. My episode today is with Rachel from Let's Grow on Instagram. So she has a private practice as well as working in a wellbeing role at a primary school and has had that role for the last five years. Her goal is to implement positive wellbeing into the school and this process has been a long process, an effective process, but one that has taken commitment and dedication to the cause. Obviously over COVID that role has morphed and evolved as well-being and mental health has become more and more important during remote learning and lockdowns. And so I just think it's a really great conversation. I talked to her about what it was like for her as a student, what she's noticed at school, what are some of the strategies that she's implemented as her role in well-being has evolved in this school. She not only works with the students, but she does a fair bit of work with the educators as well and, and is a great support to them. And I think that Anyone that listens to this episode will have some great takeaway lessons. If you want to support the podcast, please follow along, share it with somebody that you think might like the episode, follow along with me at Educating Laura on Instagram, and I intend to spend some more time with you again in two weeks. Hey Rachel, how are you? Good, thank you Laura. How are you? Good. So I want to start with how and what do you teach? I teach in two areas. So I teach students in the classroom about well-being, emotional regulation and social skills and how to cope with our mind, essentially, um, how to cope with life and the challenges that we face and how to be able to connect with ourselves um, in order to be our best selves. And then on the other side, I work with the teachers in the classroom to be able to connect with the students, to be able to observe their behaviour, to be able to identify within themselves how they are presenting in the classroom and how that might be affecting the environment. To sum that up, overall general wellbeing, human behaviour and ways to cope. And what qualifications do you have that allow you to be a really good resource in this area? So I have a Bachelor of Applied Science Psychology and I have a certificate in coaching and counselling. Yeah. So why is this a role that you wanted to have based on the fact that you have that psychology background? It was a role that sort of 
I didn't know I wanted. Okay. I really didn't know where I was going or what I was doing. I just knew that I wanted to help people and I was offered an opportunity to work at this primary school and the role sort of evolved throughout COVID oh. because originally my role was to do one-on-one counselling with students to be the school counsellor. And when we went into COVID, obviously everything changed and I started to create resources and activities for children to be able to do at home that were wellbeing based. So one of the activities was create your own affirmation cards for the students that didn't believe that they could do things. And then we were having um, obviously lots of parents stressed and overwhelmed, lots of teachers overwhelmed. So then I was creating workshops for staff to be able to help them, one, look after themselves during such a stressful time and to be able to work and communicate with the teachers, to connect with the students while being online. And then from there, it just evolved into this role that was assisting teachers in their growth and working more closely in the classroom with students instead of removing students from the classroom and having those one-on-one chats, which we still sometimes do. It's a lot more in the classroom now and we do whole class lessons and intend to be a lot more proactive than to pull them out of the classroom. How have you seen that sort of in-class immersive well-being, how have you seen that being beneficial? There's just such a sense of connection now and children need connection. That is the most, that is one of the primary things that I push. Um, I think it's one of the primary things for our healing when we grow into adults is to feel connected to ourselves and to those around us. So now I get to be in the presence of 25 children for a whole period and I get to connect with each and every single one of them. I do my very best to ensure that I allow each of them to be seen. Mm-hmm. I see you. I hear you. I want to help and support you. I want to have fun with you. And so because of that, I'm, I guess I become another safe person for them within the school. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of emotional chats. Like in our grade six class, we do circle time mm-hmm. and they can talk about whatever they want and they love it. They love it because they get to see that other students have the same fears that they have. Mm-hmm. They get to understand each other better and it's creating such a wonderful sense of empathy, which is then being taken out into the yard. Mm -hmm. Or they'll come to school and say, I think I need to talk instead of perhaps a couple of years ago, not realising that they had that option Mm -hmm. or thinking that they had to have something in particular occur for Rachel to come and pull them out of the classroom for a chat. So it's just, it just feels a lot more proactive. It feels a lot more connected and they really look forward to it, which is wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. And do you find then that kids are more willing to come and speak to you because you are such a a clear face around the school? Because I've actually had students like email me saying, where do I go for wellbeing? I said, well, that's the problem, right? Yeah. You don't even know where to go. I'm not saying that that's necessarily currently, but it has, it has occurred in my career where they email a teacher that they know and say, well, I'm having some issues. Where do I go? So how do we sort of plug that hole in showing that wellbeing is there and available and so students know that they have much more access to it? Yeah, I think that normalising it as much as we can and not making it feel like it's this big deal to go and talk to somebody. I mean, that's wonderful that somebody emailed you mm-hmm. and asked for that, but we do want to make it easy and accessible and that's why I think a classroom environment encourages it a lot more than seeing it as something that's out in the corridor or near the principal's office or in another space. It just feels like I'm there with them. We are a part of them. And the number of students that I have coming up to me and asking, are we doing circle time? Or Rachel, can I talk to you at recess? They're happy to come in at any time. They just want to check in. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think the more that we can normalise it and allow it to feel encouraging and just a part of our everyday life, this needs to be something that is a part of our everyday life. We did an activity with the students and I said, what has circle time taught you? Yeah. And they said, it's taught me that I can talk to a person. It's taught me that I feel lighter in my body once I've gotten something out. So one day these will be these children will be adults that understand the importance of talking to somebody. Yeah. So um, it'll be wonderful for them. What was it about COVID and what were the things that you or the symptoms of COVID that you were noticing that you felt, okay, we really need to deal with these issues? I think anxiety and stress in the teachers. Mm-hmm. So seeing that and as well in the parents and then thinking the children are being exposed to that stress. Of course, everyone did their very best to cope as best as they could. But it was just realising that they, they're just little people, yeah. you know, being a primary school, they're just little. And if they were in an environment where parents were stressing about the bills, stressing about getting their homework done, all of those things, well, then I wanted to be something that brought a smile to those children's faces. I wanted their teachers and those class Zooms to be an emotionally safe environment. And so, yeah, it was more looking at what their environments would be more so than what the students were presenting with. Okay, so you looked at what the adults were potentially dealing with and how that could be, I suppose, put onto the children. Yeah, how that would have a domino effect yeah. on children. Our environment is such is such a big impact. Yeah. So what kinds of things were you doing? Like what are some of the strategies that you employ other than obviously this, the talking and making that normalised? Yeah. What other things could you do? And the affirmation cards, which sounds great. What other things could <laughs> you do? Well, we taught lots of, there were activities around learning how to breathe. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we took real literal things that I teach adults. I was then trying to create an activity for children and credit to teachers because I have to create a lesson (laughs) is incredibly challenging. And I will sit there for a long period of time praying for an answer. (laughs) So we would look at, you know, breath work how to do those things, the importance of going outside and doing physical activity. And what we created was a whole wellness cap, like um, bingo sheet. Yep. And so on these sheets, you know, they could do something similar to that. So the fresh air, the being in nature, we taught about serotonin, endorphins, oxytocin, make sure you get your dose to help children learn some skills and tools. I love the fact that you're speaking about the teacher. Because I right. think so many people talk about the kids and the well-being of the kids, and even I do as well. But if the teachers are not supported and the teachers don't feel well, then obviously that's going to be impacted in the classroom. And I've seen this quote so many times about the people that go to therapy go because of the people that should have gone to therapy, right? <laughs> it's, that yeah. whole, it's that whole cycle effect. So what are some things that you're noticing in educators and how could maybe leaders look at what's going on with teachers and perhaps support them better? Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's sort of a tricky question for me to answer because I have no real knowledge around the education system and the data that is expected of teachers. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me to understand that completely and the pressure that Mm -hmm. they are under in that regard. Mm -hmm. But the way that I can look at it is from a wellbeing perspective, obviously, and what sort of things are you putting in place to be able to cope in your everyday life because the system is not going to change overnight, unfortunately, and Mm -hmm. the world is only getting busier where there are more expectations, there is more accessibility to everything, which means unless we do something to cope, unless we learn how to live in this society, it will continue to become stressful and it will continue to become overwhelming. And so 
I guess when a teacher comes to me about a student that is stressing them, the first thing I'll always ask them is, what are you doing for yourself? How are you looking after you? Are you contacting the EAP? All of those types of questions. Are you aware of your window of tolerance? How are you speaking with the student? And we work from that level. And then I guess in regards to leadership being there, it's such a tricky line because a lot of leaders say, we're there for you, we want to help you, but the leaders have data and expectations that they need to answer to as well and sometimes I just you know I don't know if it's fully understood how sometimes just taking that one day off for a mental health day can make all the difference in the world talking to someone we had a we have a teacher at my school and a couple of years ago she had a very challenging student in regards to behavior and Mm -hmm. every Friday religiously she called the EAP because she knew that's how she was going to cope. Leadership could only give her so much. And then one week, she had a wonderful week with this student. And so she called the EAP to tell them. She goes, I just wanna let you know it was awesome. So unfortunately, a lot of our answers are from within ourselves. Only we we can find them. If we are dependent on leadership, being able to find those solutions for us, there's a good chance we're going to be setting ourselves up to feel let down. Mm-hmm. they can only do so much yeah with that in mind though I do believe that they do need to be putting more things into practice to support staff yeah what that looks like like I said it's hard to say because I don't know what their demands are yeah 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 I think time and space in general is often a good opportunity yeah you know giving people the, just the time to catch up or the time to go home early or the time to you not know, not be stuck in a meeting but to decide yeah you know and as you said if we then have the skills to utilize ourselves if we have the time and space to do that sometimes that's enough oh absolutely and all the meetings that people that are held at schools are they effective are they why are we having them are they structured are they time like you know are we going in with with an intention to create something successful or are there a lot of teachers there that don't want to be there and so everything discussed in the meeting becomes irrelevant and pointless and just another job for them to do so with that in mind, I guess our attitude is a big part of this as well. Mm. As somebody that hasn't necessarily done any teaching, I like a quiet space. Mm. <laughs> At my clinic, yeah. we have mindfulness music and incense. Mm. I can't walk into a classroom and have an expectation that students match the level of quiet that I want. Yeah, I have to learn how to adjust and shift my attitude and my expectation so that the students win. At the Mm. end of the day, I need to set those students up to succeed. So then I would be asking teachers, what are you doing to ensure that that this student succeeds? And it's not about, it's not the intention to put pressure. They're not obviously responsible for this student. The teacher is responsible for themselves. And when you're your best self, you'll be your best teacher and those students will thrive. If you go back and consider yourself as a student, is there something at school that you felt was lacking for you? Something that you wish had been different? that educators now in the classroom can think about and maybe, you know, make a more conscious effort to do in their own classrooms? Such a great question. And when I think back to my time at school, it is sort of a blur, but Mm -hmm. I I think it's a blur because I disassociated a lot when I was at school. Okay. So what does that mean for people that don't understand what that means? Disassociating is when you sort of, you just, well, it's um, a stress response to anxiety. And disassociating okay. is when you sort of disconnect from the situation. Okay. So, you know, the, and that behaviour looks like rocking around in your chair, looking outside, not not looking present. And so I did that a lot because I struggled to interpret information at school. 
and I wasn't sure that I understood how to learn. And I guess what I would have loved from school was perhaps a teacher that maybe just like would have pulled me aside and said, Rach, I see you. Are you doing okay? Do you need help? You know, I was so nervous at school that I wouldn't even hand in practice exams because I didn't want the feedback. Okay. Yeah, I didn't want to feel like I was failing, so I wouldn't even give it a go. And I think I just would have loved a teacher that maybe sat with me mm-hmm. and helped me talk it through, helped me understand what was expected of me. Because there can be, a, and I look at the questions in the classroom now for, for grade five students, for grade primary school students, yeah. and I'll say to the teacher, I have no idea what you're asking them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's just the wording of, of the system. It's, and I, I'm literally, as a fully grown adult, yeah. completely confused by the question. It's funny that you say that because actually formulating a good question is so hard. It's so hard to create a question and to structure it in a way that you get the response you want. Yeah. Like I remember I used to help write the year 12 biology sacks and we would write them and then we would get the kids' responses and we would have an answer sheet that we expected and we had to be humble about it and say, yeah. you know what, the way that question is asked, that answer is reasonable. And we would have to then add and add and add and build to our answer sheet because whatever they answered, wow. if the question actually suggested that that was reasonable, you have to accept it because it's not fair. I did a lot of marking for VCAR and it comes from that because yeah. you have to be fair to the student if that's how the question's asked. And the people that mark are not the people that write the paper, right. which is always great because it means you have no preconceived idea as to what you expect. You just read it and answer it as if you're a student. And so then you get student responses, then you have to build the answer sheet from there. But I think unless you have experiences like that, you don't realise how open some of your questions actually are. Absolutely. That's so interesting to hear. That's fascinating. Um, That's so cool that you assisted in writing the, uh, did you say exams? That's so cool. Uh, The sacks, yeah. A lot of of teachers would be involved in writing assessments (laughs) and things, but I think having that experience of working at the Year 12 department level you start to see that we you can't be that close. Like if I ask a question and your answer is reasonable, but that's not the answer I want, I'm the one responsible for that, not you. Absolutely, yeah. And interpretation is a huge thing. It's a huge thing in regards to well-being, and mm-hmm. it's a huge thing in regards to other other questions. And I think that that needs to be taken into consideration for different thinkers. You know, it can't just be pigeonholed the way that a teacher would want that answer to be delivered. I remember teaching a subject called Who's Reality and it was this English subject was great. The theme was Who's Reality? And so you explore the fact that we all have a different reality. What is real for us is actually not necessarily exactly what happened. It's all of our biases. It's all of our values and morals and stuff that we use to interpret a situation that we've all perhaps experienced. And so our reality will be vastly different. So how do you help people who perhaps experience the same thing together but come away with it with such different beliefs and different views on, you know, being a victim or a perpetrator or a a bystander? How do you support people when perhaps their reality may be a bit distorted or maybe a bit skewed with what actually happened? That's such an excellent question. Is that for ch- is that for children or is that for adults or is this just in everyone. general? <laughs> everyone, because I think everybody does it. Everybody does it. Ah, oh, that is such a great question because it really differs for each individual that you work with. So, being that we all sort of have these unique personalities, no one way fits all. And so, 
in regards to the students, we do a lot of activities about situations that occur and the way in which a person may interpret that. And I, I think for children, it's about helping them understand that there can be different perspectives. Yeah. And that no one way is the right way. No one's interpretation is wrong. But it's a matter of how you want to feel and the meaning you want to give something. So then it's about creating a disciplined mind or really goes two ways. Oh, that's such a complex question, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) Do your best with the education system in mind. Okay. So in regards to the teachers, we do a lot of workshops on helping them understand who they are and therefore how they present in the classroom. And so I teach the teachers a lot of resources in regards to the window of tolerance. So looking at what you are tolerant to and what you are not. And we look at something called transactional analysis, which is looking at what state of mind you are in when you're communicating in a relationship. Okay. So that can be any kind of relationship. And so there are dysfunctional ways of responding and there are healthy ways of responding. So it looks at a parent-adult-child approach. So when you are in a dysfunctional parent role, you're most likely talking down to a person. Mm-hmm. You are believing that you are right and that your way is the only way. So that's one way. When you are operating out of a dysfunctional child state of mind, you can go two ways. You can become incredibly rebellious and throw tantrums where you say things like, I don't care, you can't tell me what to do, I'm sick of this system. Or you can become really withdrawn and submissive and essentially you're saying, just tell me what to do so that I know I'm doing the right thing. And dysfunctional child isn't necessarily a child. An adult can behave as a dysfunctional child, correct? Absolutely, yes. These dysfunctional states are referring to adults that behave in that way. Yeah. They just refer to those terms because that's how they evolve, you know, as from children or they become dominant parents that talk down to their children. Mm -hmm. But those behaviours are for adults. Yeah. And so I always will say to a teacher that you want to be in your adult, which is calm, logical, and rational. Mm-hmm. So when an incident occurs and you're interpreting that information and that event, and you're about to perhaps react in, an, in a dysfunctional parent way, you're not calm, logical, and rational. Mm-hmm. You are spiraling off in distorted thinking. Yeah. Because if you were calm, logical, and rational, you would respond to that situation very differently. Yeah, And I think that that is a really good criteria for helping us interpret information in a healthiest way possible. Because when we're in those other states, that's where we'll find things that are a little bit more distorted. Yeah. What do you say to somebody? Like, I have two little kids. My husband has a stressful business. I'm an educator. Yeah. 100% that I would spiral off into either of those at some (laughs) point, right? Like, I'm not for one moment saying that. I will, I, yep, I get it. I'm always going to be in that in that great logical rationalist place. What Absolutely. happens to people that do spiral off and then once you sort of calm down and you recognise that's what you've done, what are some strategies that you can then do to maybe heal the situation? Right, so to heal it with the student. Yep. Yeah. So we use the same terminology with the students that we use for ourselves. So we had a particular teacher that spiralled yep. and the student left the classroom mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And when they came back together, the teacher explained that her window of tolerance was really small Mm -hmm. and she became very triggered and Mm -hmm. she felt out of control Mm -hmm. and she reacted and she apologised. And I think that that shows children that we as adults feel things too. Yeah, It helps them understand that they're not just being told off. It helps them have empathy because they start to learn that a teacher feels. It it has a really beautiful recipe to it. Mm. 
So I think that's the best way. That's what I would encourage. How important is it that your school works in language like that? Like window of tolerance, triggering, like yeah. all, of those, all of that language. I mean, the kids talk about being triggered, but it's not from a safe psychological place. You know, they talk yeah. about it from, I don't know, something that they've seen on TikTok. So how important is actually <laughs> understanding that kind of language in schools? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important incredibly important we do that with the grade sixes where we'll draw the brain and we'll explain the anxiety and we'll talk about that environment and say you didn't come first in the race what are you thinking and people say oh I'm, I'm failure I'm no good it's not fair and we look at all these dysfunctional ways of thinking that lead us to feel sad or feel an emotion that doesn't feel good and so then the fact that teachers can then do that for themselves as well it's healing for the teachers and we're all on the same path and it only leads to empowerment. It only leads to understanding. It only leads to connection. So I think it's incredibly important. From a psychological perspective, most schools use punitive measures to control students. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I have a pretty big problem with that. (laughs) Yeah, I think that unless your consequence is something with an intention to help a student learn, and create a neurological pathway to understand that if I do A and B, it will result in C, then your intention is not genuine for the student. Mm. Your intention is to feel like you have control of the room. Your intention is to display that you're the boss, that you're the leader. And I believe that that is a teacher problem. Okay. This is really interesting because, well, I mean, most teachers grow up believing that that's how to teach. Absolutely. I think you and I are probably similar age went through schooling, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Any teacher that I had certainly behaved that way. All of the consequences that we got were detentions, suspensions, having to do additional work. It was never to go in to see somebody and talk through a situation. And I I know that well-being and coaching and things in schools has evolved significantly since we've been at schools, which is amazing. But I still think that that probably is the knee-jerk reaction to most out of control behaviors or difficult children Mm. how do you do that in an effective way on such a large scale or is it even possible or do we do like do we do it little bits at a time like what do you think yeah I think little bits at a time is the best way it's Mm -hmm. so much easier for me to say this when I work in a school with 330 students yeah big schools it is it can feel really scary and overwhelming and think where do we even start yeah and you know we started this process with our positive approach five years ago and we're really starting to see the results of it now but five years ago teachers were saying it's not working the students still behaving the same way yeah and you're like yeah they really are and then one day you wake up and they're not and so you know it's not to say that uh detentions have no place but it's more a matter of ensuring that that student understands they're going to detention because they've broken an expectation at school or you know we don't put our hands on somebody else or whatever it may be. It's ensuring that they understand why they actually are there, not just feeling like they're getting a consequence because that's what occurs. So I think it's the meaning we give it and it's the conversations we have before it. If if they're kept in for 10 minutes because they were talking, understanding why that has occurred, more so than what the actual consequence is. Mm -hmm. That's the communication is so important. I think, I think that's what's missed for a lot been, you know, when you think back to, like you said, our, we're probably around the same age and our parents, I know that my parents were hit with rulers. Yeah. You know, and at that yeah. point in time, those teachers were just doing what they believed was the right approach mm-hmm. as we are doing now in the classroom as well. And 
the more we're continuing to learn, the more we're understanding that we need to be able to explain the why to help children understand it. It's not just a matter of, it's because I said so. I think in education, we aren't that patient. <laughs> you guys have so much to do. <laughs> and that's, I think, a big problem. And even if, I, even if I look at, like, educational modalities and things that we bring into schools and we want to integrate, we often don't get enough time to really flesh anything out. And I think behaviour is another one. You know, unless we are committed and we make a commitment, mm. it's so much easier to revert back to things that, that work quickly in yep. order to get the job done. And, I mean, high school is even more so, I think, because we have, like, 45 minutes with kids yeah. at a time. Yeah. Like, it's quick, quick, quick. You know, it's not – I think primary schools have more of an opportunity because they have one teacher for a length of time the whole year. You can build those relationships and you can really, I think, make some headway. But high school is a little bit behind in that because we're so content-driven that when you know something works, you're very quick to just go back to it rather than persevere. And I think yeah. that is that is an educational issue. It's definitely yeah. a system issue, isn't it? There is more importance placed on the data yeah. of other subjects than the overall well-being yeah. of children and students. And we have to ask ourselves, what's our intent? What do we want for these children when we le- when they leave school? Do we want them to have the highest results data-wise or do we want them to be happy individuals? I think and a lot of people would still say results. Yeah. Think, is it, is that, I, well, the reason I say that is because I think if you get the result, then you have the opportunity, right? That's how people reason it. So if we can push them to the point mm. of getting that result, well, then the world is their oyster and then they can do all the things. But I was saying this to a student the other day. I'm like, to be able to sit in a classroom and be educated and have nothing else to do, no other responsibility other than to sit here and have an education as an adult, if you want an education, you have to find a job. You have to then go part-time. You then have to do it at night. Like it's it's a privilege to be able to sit in a room and have nothing else that matters than to be educated. But the problem is that right. we as a system decide what education needs to look like and we don't value well-being right. as an educational importance, right. do we? We value no. content. We value facts and figures. We value being able to write well, all of those things. And all of those things are important, but – where do they get an opportunity to learn how to function as human beings if they don't get that chance in a classroom when they're being educated? We're expecting yeah, them to learn it when they leave. Well, they, well, that's that's the whole point. Like, oh, we've given you all the opportunity now. You can do whatever you like. All those holes that we missed, well, you're the adult now. You have to fix it. That doesn't make sense to me. Right. When you put it like that, it really does feel overwhelming. It feels really challenging to find how you fill in those gaps. Yeah, and where in the where because everyone's yeah. day is so full I just look at it from a logistical perspective in terms of the timetable being as full as it is where do you find it where is right I, and I think that it, it can't necessarily be that we dedicate this whole time a whole period of time to yeah. helping people understand who they are yeah right I think that it comes from the connection that teachers will have with students I think it comes from that one percent of the role modeling that teachers do in front of students. Yeah. I think that is where we can make a small difference in regards to student well-being and overall well-being. Because when I think back to what I needed as a student, I was that student that wasn't looking at the teacher because I didn't want to be chosen. Yeah. I was that student that pretended I need to go to the toilet so I didn't have to read out loud in class. I was that student. And so I didn't necessarily need a lot except maybe just that one moment, just one moment where a teacher pulled me aside and saw me and you never got it not that I can recall 
No. And I had very intelligent friends. My two best friends were the, you know, considered the smartest girls in the year level. And I didn't think I was that. Yeah. And I, I wasn't that. <laughs> As an adult, I read my first book at 20, at 29 years old because I didn't know how to read. I didn't know how to interpret information. So we'd be silent reading and I'd just be looking at a page. And as an adult now that works in the education system, I wonder, did a teacher notice that? Yeah. Did they care? Were they too busy? Was I that student that appeared fine so I flew under the radar? Or was I one of those students that teachers felt, oh, I can't be bothered with it? And I don't know what I thought at the time. I can't remember except thinking that I couldn't wait for it to be over. Yeah. And so I just think that I, I didn't need a whole well-being lesson on it. But if someone just saw me, yeah, if I felt like a teacher was impressed with me at one moment, you know, if I just felt emotionally safe to fail, yeah, that would have made potentially a difference. I mean, we don't know, but as an adult reflecting back, yeah, I think those things are where we can make a difference for students. So it doesn't need to be this huge dedication of time. And so what's happened? Because ultimately you went through school and you had these situations where you didn't feel as though you could interpret information well or that perhaps you weren't intellectual in those moments. And yet here you are teaching kids about well-being. You have your bachelor in psychology. So what shifted? How were you able to then fill in the gaps then after school to allow you to be at this place? <laughs> I very much had the attitude of peas get the degrees. Okay. I... <laughs> Okay. I avoided uni for about a year and a half. Yeah. Eventually went to uni, just prayed for, you know, 50% or more, 50% or more. And then it wasn't until I was doing it hands on that I learned. It wasn't until I was talking it through with people, because I think that's how I, that's how I learn is to be able to talk through what I've just tried to interpret. And so that is how I got to this point. Which is a shame that you didn't have those opportunities to recognise that at school. Like that you right, didn't have yeah. chances to talk through, to collaborate, to discuss that everything must have been that kind of rote learning, that reading and then writing down what you what you have read. Yeah. That's a problem, the fact that you didn't have more opportunities to learn in a variety of ways or to show information in a variety of ways. Absolutely. I tutor a student currently who has processing issues and if you yeah. speak to him, He's great, but we've been having conversations. I tutor with another another teacher. We've been having conversations with the mum about the fact that it is likely that he will never be able to show his intelligence in a VC exam. Yeah, yeah. And it's rubbish. It's rubbish that that's the reality I have to give him, that it's not that you're not intelligent. It's just that the way that, that VCE tests will never allow you to showcase what you can actually do. Absolutely, and that is that is so unfair. Yeah, that is so unfair. There's not a lot of things that I'll agree to as unfair because, you know, cognitive distortion is the belief that everything in life is fair. And if we get stuck on that, it does form anxiety and depression that can keep us very stuck. Yeah. But that in particular is incredibly unfair to students. It is. Yeah. It is. And I feel the same way. Like I was a fine student, did what I had to do. I never went above and beyond. I remember my sister when she got into year 12, she didn't go to parties. She stayed at home studying. And I remember going, oh, right. this is what people did. I had no idea. I just kind of did what I was told. Like I was just very compliant. I just did what I was told and I was fine at school. And I went to university and I did what I was told and I was fine. But I didn't really enjoy it particularly. Like I never had that, oh, I love to learn. I just kind of did it because that's what everyone did. And it wasn't until I got into the classroom 
that I really was like, whoa, this is really amazing and this is really important and look at what I can actually do and look at the things that you can achieve through education. But I wasn't particularly inspired as a student in the system. Yeah, and that's fascinating because I look at you and I look at all that you do and I would have assumed that you were somebody that thrived in a school environment. No, I was just one of those kids that coasted through. Like I was fine. I didn't have a lot of anxiety around going to school, but I didn't have a lot of joy about going to school either. Yeah, absolutely. And and when you were speaking before, it just reminded me, you know, that when you do activities and you say something to a student and they have to answer quietly or they have to read through something, to not be able to talk it through with my friends, that was probably one of the most anxiety-inducing activities that I would have to do because I'd have to rely completely on myself and the belief in myself that I could interpret information. And I really am one of those people where I'll read it and then I need to talk it through. Yeah. And, you know, in those types of activities, and I get it, you have to do silent reflection and, and all of that, but I, I, I had no idea what I was interpreting and I then wouldn't interpret information because I was too busy thinking about how anxious I was yeah. and I just needed to pretend like I was doing something. But I think that that's a teacher thing, as you said. Like I don't like complete quiet. It makes me uncomfortable. So I would, pref- I always generate conversation and I'm hopeless. If the kids are doing private work, I'll be like, how's it going? And they're like, me, I'm like, oh. so it is funny how the things that you, and I wonder yeah. whether I feel safe in that co- because I no one sort of pinpointed maybe that maybe right. that's where that's come from. I'm not sure, but it's funny because then you go to other classrooms and I think that I always struggle with this because as a teacher, you tend to assume a good, like a good learning classroom. I say that in inverted commas is heads down, <laughs> silent, teacher wandering right. around, you know, very much in control. And my classrooms aren't really like that. I love that. I love hearing that. <laughs> so it's Because funny, it disconnects it? us as well. And I think that you're right. Like I think that would definitely come from what makes you feel comfortable. Yeah. And that's just a huge example of how what we feel, what regulates us, what allows us to feel at peace is then what we put into the classroom. Yeah. You know, so when I'm in the classroom, I always love, I just muck around with the students. Yeah. I just love to banter and I love to do all of those things because I want them to feel safe in the room. I want them to feel that it's okay to make a mistake and and to have fun and to have a laugh because I think laughter is just so soothing. Yeah. So I want to create that. It's so funny. I was sitting in one of those like teacher chairs the other day, you know, the swivelly chairs, you can push them up and down or whatever. And I was just chatting to some of my year 12s and I pressed the wrong lever and it pushed me (laughs) forward. Like the whole back went forward. So I was like in this like bizarre crippled position. And I just got up and I'm like, I'm not going to be able to fix that. Like, I, that's it. Like, I cannot. Who can do this? And a couple of the boys came and fixed it for me. I was like, thanks. Like, I'm, I'm either going to sit in this, like, weird, you know, demented position for the rest of the classroom or, you, you know, you're going to have that. Like, so I think that not taking yourself so seriously as a teacher is really important. I think that's so important. Who, who cares? Who cares yeah. if you make a mistake? Who, who cares if you say something silly? Because there's always ways to get to the right answer. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. Who cares? <laughs> we need a lot more of that. We need it to feel light and flowy and safe. Yeah. It's just all about feeling that connection and that safe. And children need to feel connected to themselves so that they can be their authentic self. And you know, research has shown that children need two things in this life. They need attachment, so connection, and the ability to be authentic. And in the moment when they think that they're not going to get connection, they'll compromise their authenticity just to feel like they're still connected to something. Yeah. And it's right in that moment that we start to disconnect from ourselves as human beings. Yeah. And then we fast forward 30 years and we have adults saying, I don't know who I am. Yeah. I don't know what I want. I have a wonderful life, but I'm not happy. It's because from that moment on, your brain is associated. 
So if we can give enough connection, if we can create environments that feel so warm, so safe, so playful, you know, I guess I'm referring to primary school, yeah. but, you know, I think high school can be a bit fun. Yeah. Then hopefully we'll, we'll help students become people that really love themselves. On that note, personally, what are situations and circumstances that make you feel the most authentic? I think when I'm having fun. Okay. I'm mucking around with students. Actually, I think it goes two ways. I think that, um, yeah, like mucking around with students and having fun, somewhat breaking the school rules to, to have fun with children and see them light up. Yeah. That makes me feel amazing. But then also being in those moments where you've pulled a student aside, you've been observing their behaviour, you can see something doesn't look quite right and you pull them aside and you just ask them, are you okay? And if it's, and they become quite emotional. Mm. And in that moment you think, I'm so glad I saw something. Yeah. And I'm so glad you're getting the opportunity to release it. So polar opposite moments, but they're moments that are so healing in different ways. So I think being able to not give that to a student, but to be able to have that opportunity, it all comes down to just feeling seen. Yeah. Yeah, when, when I feel that, that I'm seeing somebody, I think that makes me feel really alive. What is something in your adult life that you have come to, whether it's an idea, a technology, anything, it could be as broad as you like, something that you have that has come to you as, as an adult that you think if I'd had this as a kid, it would have made things better? I think it's such a great question. I would say exactly what you're doing, podcasts and Audible. Ah. When I listened to my first Audible, oh, my God, I thought I was amazing. <laughs> I listened to a whole book yeah. and I, I heard the information. It was being spoken to me. Yeah. And I would be driving in my car and I would talk to myself. And so I was really able to absorb information. And that's what created my spark to want to learn how to read properly. Yeah. And, yeah, so I think Audible has been a life-changing technology for me. Yeah. Definitely something that I didn't know I needed. It's funny <laughs> because I grew up, I grew up in a, a house of readers. My parents loved to read and they would, like, sneak away from us as kids to go and read their books, you know. And so I always saw that as something that I should do as an adult, that when you're an adult, you just sit and you read. And as a kid, I read a lot. But as an adult, I don't have a lot of time to just sit and read. Like what a luxury to sit and not be bothered and right. read a book without 500 other things going on in your brain. But in the car, so that is honestly the place that I consume most information. When I sit right. there and I decide what podcast I want to listen to, I decide what, what book I want to listen to. And I think we need to normalise that that's just as effective learning. Right. I completely agree. We have almost this elitist belief, like, you know, if it's a film, it's not as good as a book, right? Because yeah. it's not, it's just not as good, you know. Intellectually, we, we, we value reading over watching. But is it any better or any worse? Like, why do we do that? Where did that like? Where does that even come from? Well, maybe maybe it's just from me as a teacher that I that I hear those conversations often about. Yeah, oh, but, it's such but where a did teachers get that film. from? Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're still getting the same information, does it matter? Some people are visual learners anyway, or auditory learners. That's right. That's right. I think that that is an, an issue in the system. This attitude that learning needs to be done a certain way, and that's a reflection of intelligence. Yeah, oh, totally. I think that that's a very wide scale educational situation like if you go to university they give you like big well it's been a while since I've been to university to be fair but they used to give you big chunks of like readings to do I'm like oh, yeah can I get this some other way this is so boring 
Yeah, it is. And I, I think I can sit here and honestly say that a lot of my learnings came after university. Me too. It wasn't, it wasn't the prac reports that I was writing, you know, and I think about going back and doing my thesis and I think, what will I actually get out of that that will be anything other than a doctorate degree? You know, like what is my, what do I actually want that for? Because I don't know if I believe that I'm going to learn things through that certificate that I couldn't learn through another book out here. I've had people ask me because of the podcast, would you do a master's or whatever? And I'm like, but for what? Right. I didn't really love sitting in lectures and listening to people talk at me. Maybe it would be better now because I could do it in my own time. I'm sure you can watch it now. So maybe, maybe. Look, I had a a pre-service teacher in the staff room saying, hey, Laura, I've listened to your podcast. I want to come on and I want to talk about how much university is a waste of time in education. (laughs) And he's still in education. He's still in the, he's still in his degree. And I said, I get it. Because when you come into the schools, you go, oh, this is what I'm doing. All the things that you've been talking about that have gone over my head for the last two semesters. Oh, this is what it's about. So, I mean, immersion in education should be way more mainstream. We're actually going off and doing the actual job, which is what it used to be. You know, nurses used to be in hospitals. Teachers used to be in classrooms. And they used to be more apprenticeships. And now we've gone into that really academic route. But is that good learning? And if that's the education system we're being sold, why is it not the best possible opportunity for learning? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're spot on with that. And I and I think it's a really outdated way of learning. And I don't think that it's appropriate for all individuals. And I don't think that it is even achieving much. I don't hear often anyone tell me how effective university was for them. And I think that a lot of people are stuck on the belief of the attitude, you know, and this, I guess, is social psychology and how we interpret information and what we're raised in to believe that one way is the right way, whether that's in education or just like, you know, owning a house or renting. Yeah. There are rules that we've created and we need to break down these rules and only have rules for ourselves and what suits us. And not even that. In addition to that, you know, you're going to be in $20,000 more debt, more. you know, yeah, like yeah. For, for, for a piece of paper. And although they feel good and although I have, you know, like several certificates that are up on my wall, what are they? Because it didn't come from university. It came from getting to know people. Yeah. And reading things alternatively that helped widen my knowledge. And then I suppose deciding on the course based on what you needed at that moment, right? So like Mm. you're in a place like, oh, this is a skill that I'm lacking. That course is going to fill that gap for me. And you're in the place to do it. I often find that too with kids, like, oh, we never learn about taxes. We never learn about real life things. I'm like, yeah, but Mm. would you have listened? Fair question. My sister, who's a midwife, and every first time mum, you can't tell them anything after the birth because I don't care. I don't care. (laughs) They only care about getting the baby out. The rest, they'll figure the rest out later. You know, people talk about the sleep. but No one wants to hear it. And the second time mum, they know the birth is just a day and they focus on all the things that come after. But it's right. only about when you're ready to hear those things, if you're in the space to hear it. And so, as I said, you get to this moment where you're like, you know, that skill I don't have, so I'm going to get that now. And it's going to be directly yep. applicable to what I'm doing. Whereas we try and give these kids content for an entire lifetime of understanding, mm-hmm. which they can't possibly get. And then you realise that there are things that they find interesting later that they actually learnt at school, but they don't remember they learnt at school because I didn't care. Right. So it's just, yeah. I don't, I'm picking holes, I suppose, rather than, you know, proposing solutions, but. No, <laughs> but I think that that leads to what you said about we need to care less, 
right? Like we need to not put so much emphasis on them learning things because some students will absorb it and some won't. And we can't control that. Yeah. You know, so we can't control everything. We can't give them everything, you know, and that's where I guess I keep going back to the feeling of, but if we can make sure or if we can ensure that they feel happy yeah. or they feel safe, then at least we've given them that. Yeah. There was a lot of things I did not listen to in school. Yeah. Because I didn't because I didn't want to. It's all well and good to play the card of I didn't feel seen. Yeah. Sometimes I just didn't give a yeah. shit. <laughs> you know yeah (laughs) there's just all of those factors and you know it's so funny when you say that you can't tell a first-time mother anything you can't I think it's also about then being comfortable with knowing that not all of what you're trying to teach is going to be received yeah and that's okay and if we struggle with that then we've got control issues or we've got fear around feeling we're not performing well enough you know and that's where it always comes back to well what's my belief systems what are my thought processes and how am I bringing that into the classroom or how am I putting extra pressure on myself what is the cause of the anxiety you know I'll never forget when you pointed out that teachers know they need to write reports you know it and so you said I just do them like I start them early because I don't want to have the burden of it and the stress and yeah it's like simplicity you still have to do the work You've just chosen to take on an attitude yeah. that suits the experience. And I feel yeah. that for teachers in the education system, obviously there's a lot of changes that need to be made at the top to then come yeah. on down. But from the bottom up, you know, like the roots of a tree, the strength, the foundation, connection, that 1%, that smile at a student, a smile at a teacher. And it's not always about being perfect. We can tag out. I say to teachers all the time, tap out, tell us if you're not coping and, and I'll come in and I'll support. Yeah. But you need to ensure that you're saying I'm not coping because of what I'm feeling. I'm not I'm not coping because of that student. Yeah. Because then that's finger blaming and then that's not processing for you. That's not healing for you. You know, so we can definitely put things in place to cope and survive as long as it's there's accountability for the greater good of teachers as well. It's all about that sense of safety. Last question. Yes. Big life lessons or teachable moments for you? Okay, I think one of the biggest lessons, one of the biggest growths that I ever had was recognising and identifying coping mechanisms that don't serve. So Okay. Yeah, so I think that that was probably one of the most pivotal things for me and I think that that's what I bring to help others is the sense of I used to be a very angry individual. Okay. It was just my way of coping. I was intolerant to people. Everything frustrated me. I was ready to go. I was ready to, I would go into fight mode a lot as a stress response. And I think learning that it's okay to change and learning that a lot of how, a lot of who we are has most likely evolved from a dysfunctional place of coping. Yeah. Means that it's okay to break all of that down to become something different and to feel different. When I first learned that it was okay to cry instead of get angry, that was huge. And when I learned that patience can come from sitting and breathing, that was huge. So I think neuroplasticity, I guess I'm sort of going all over the place with this, but neuroplasticity to know that we can rewire our brain to be whatever we want it to be, that we are never just as we are because that's who I am. We will only ever be who we choose to be. Yeah. If you have the awareness of that factor, and so I think learning that it's okay to change, that it's okay to feel and that everything does pass. You know, it's only a moment in time where you will feel such severe levels of discomfort as you're growing and changing. But what you feel on the other side is so wonderful that it makes it all worth it. 
And so I think learning, so going from maybe, you know, a 24 to 25 year old who was incredibly angry to being a 31 year old now that's filled with quite a lot of peace and belief in myself. That's probably been, it's been a pivotal journey, you know, to do the work, to go to therapy, to put things in practice that you are going to create a better version of you, to be disciplined. Self-care is like such a term that's thrown around, but it's really self-discipline. It's about liking yourself enough to do the things that are going to make you feel good instead of doing things for a quick hit, you know? So I think that's probably been the biggest, and those things, all you learn all of those things because you go through hard times. So, you know, you can sit there and have regrets or wish that things had gone differently or you can find the balance in the pain and then look at what it gave you. You can either give up or keep going, but they're the only two choices that we have. And I think I I could have gone down a path where I gave up, Yeah, being resentful, being angry, being all of those things, but the fact that I made it onto the keep going lane, yeah, um, that's probably been one of the biggest things for me. It reminds me of a conversation I had with a couple of my year 12s who are very, very dogmatic in their belief systems right like they believe what is right or wrong and they're very black and white thinkers and I think about myself at that time and I think I wasn't quite like that but I think I had much more strong beliefs when I was younger Mm. than I do now and it seems counterproductive because you think you know more so surely you would have more solidified belief (laughs) systems now but I think I think I'm more open to the fact that people can change my mind yeah I love that Yes. Whereas I think as a kid, having a belief that you stuck to felt so much safer because you always had an answer. It's scary to not really know. It's scary to be in that sort of place of ambiguity. But that I think is something that I take from your answer too, is is understanding that going back to something that you know because it feels safe Mm. doesn't necessarily actually make you that safe. Right. Yeah. It doesn't serve you. And is it keeping you stuck? And like you said, the unknown is uncomfortable. And so the more we yeah. can build mental resilience to be in the unknown to, you know, why do I need to be right? Why do I need to feel like it's my way? And how intolerant am I to allow it to be right for you and right for me, right? Because it's like a game of tennis. It's like at some point we'll just keep lobbing back and forth until one person gives up. And then it's a matter of, well, one of us has to lose. Yeah. And why would you want people around you to lose? Yeah. When I learned that, that was a huge light switch for me of, wow, why do I always need to be that person that's right, dominant, in control, seen as elite compared to others? Well, because I don't feel elite within myself. But you're yeah. right, I think, and as we get older, we realise we know nothing. The more you, like, ignorance yeah. is bliss. Yeah. <laughs> and the more you learn, the more you realise I know nothing and I want to be open and change is good. A flexible mind is healthy. I think that when we're young, we think to be black and white or dominant in our beliefs makes us strong, like we feel strong. Nah, totally. that's wrong. Nah, this yeah. is that. When I think back on myself, I think yeah. like, geez, Rach, like, um, you know, to feel, sit there and, and be happy to learn and to ask questions. I'm in my principal's office all the time and she'll say something to me. I said, I don't know what that word means. Yeah. What are you talking, you know? And I would never would have been able to do that. Yeah. Once upon a time, like, I bring it back to who cares? Like, let's simplify it. Let's not put so much pressure. And I feel like that's, a, it like shows for the system. There's so much pressure. Learn this be this way, answer in this way. There's too many rules. There's not enough flexibility and we can't move through life without flexibility. My students were talking to me about, have you heard the word eshe? Have you heard about this? Oh, so I'm like, what? I had a client call me I'm an like, eshe. What is it? I thought, and this shows my ignorance, I thought it was them like kind of taking the piss out of an essay. 
That's what I thought. <laughs> and Eshe was like them, like, say, yeah. So I was kind of like, so they were using it because I was using it in English. Like, what are you talking about? And they were telling me it was kind of like a wannabe gangster or something. I'm like, what? Right. How do you get, I said to me, there would be some kind of derivative of, of the word gangster. Like Eshe has nothing to do with the word gangster. Like what? How, how are you supposed to make that connection? And like, well, why does, you know, that called a plate? And why is that called paper? I said, no, but this is a word that you've evolved recently. So surely it would come from a word that you understand in the language, right? right. And so we Googled it. We Googled oh. yeah, well, like, where has this come from? And it was, it's pig Latin for <laughs> lad. So it was, what is it? Because <laughs> pig Latin's like you take the first letter and you put it at the end, then you add an A. So it was meant to be lad and it would it became Adlay. Right, and yeah. then a group of Sydney youths in 2007 started pronouncing it differently. Rather than Adelaide, it was Sha. No way. Yeah. So that's that's where it comes from, and we all and we googled it, and I was like, "There you go, I've now learnt with you." <laughs> it was so, like such a bizarre situation, but they were like looking at me like I was an idiot. I love I was it. Like, I don't, what this makes no sense to me. This is why it makes no sense to me. They couldn't explain Right. It. So I was like, let's figure it out. Yeah, I can't I, believe that that's where it evolved from. Yeah. La- yeah. To be a lad or something in pig, pig Latin. That's so funny because I call some of the year six boys lads. I'm like, all right, lads, let's go. Yeah. So I'm going to have to go and tell them that actually means eshe. <laughs> yeah. We need to change that. Yeah. yeah. It's a bizarre. <laughs> a bizarre. There you go. Well, thank you so much for having this chat with me. I know that it's been a long time coming. Yeah, it really has been. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure.